My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. As we think about an Easter message I heard about this situation that happened recently. February 29th here in the Portland area, this couple, Gail Murphy and her boyfriend Chris Murray, they set out on a 24-day rafting trip down the Colorado River. It's very difficult to get this kind of permit. And they set out in the Colorado River where there's no cell service, where there's no texting, there's no internet, there's nothing. You are completely isolated. Some of you moms are wishing you could go on that right now. Yeah, completely isolated. And they set off on this incredible lifetime journey. And as they worked their way down the Colorado River, they met other rafters and other expeditions, but nobody knew what was going on in the outside world. And when they finally pulled their raft up to shore, the lady from the expedition met them and she said these words, the world is different now. And they had no idea what she was talking about. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being so isolated and cut off that when somebody said to you, COVID-19, they looked at you and said, what are you talking about? Coronavirus? What is that? I mean, imagine, let's go back a number of years to uh, 2011, September 11, 2001. And, and imagine you went to work on September 12th and you showed up at work and everybody's hanging out at the water cooler and all everybody's talking about are the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, the two buildings that have fallen and what's happened in New York City. And you look there and you go, what are you talking about? I mean, what kind of person wouldn't know about the news of their day? Well, a very interesting thing happened nearly 2,000 years ago at the time of Jesus when something very similar happened, when the whole world knew of an event, when it was so monumental and so amazing that everybody talked about it. In fact, there's a passage in Luke 24. I'm just going to summarize for you and then close with reading one verse. And the basic idea is this, is that two guys have been to Jerusalem and they have seen Jesus condemned and they have seen Jesus go to the cross and die. And they have seen him put in a grave and they are heartbroken. And they are walking home on Sunday morning, Easter morning. And they are heading home seven miles away to a place called Emmaus. And as they're on the road to Emmaus, they're talking about, they're discussing this. Their hearts are broken. They don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. I thought he, thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was going to come to rescue the world. I thought he was going to save us from our oppressors. I thought he was going to break the bonds of our slavery. And as they're talking about this... Jesus shows up. Now, they don't know it's Jesus because God has blinded their eyes to that. So they just see him as another guy. And as Jesus walks along with them, he asks them this incredulous question. He says, what are you talking about? 
And they say to him, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened in the last few days. And Jesus looked at them and says, what things? And they go on to explain all the events. And Jesus says to them these words. He took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall that day when Jesus walked through Genesis to Malachi and explained everything that everybody had missed. Jesus opened up all the writings of Moses, all the law, all the prophets, all the writings, and he went through and he said, this is exactly what was foretold by the prophets. Jesus opened the entire Hebrew Bible and said, it all pointed to me. None of this was an accident. It was a tragedy for sure, but it wasn't an accident. Now, every year I read through the Bible and I start in Genesis and I get to Revelation. And I got to tell you this, I miss it so many times. I, I read through the Old Testament and I wonder where, where was Jesus pointing? What was he looking at? What was he quoting? When my kids were little, they used to look at those Where's Waldo books. You know what those were? And the little guy that would walk around with the red and white hat and everybody else had red and white on and he was kind of obscure. He was hidden. As the books progressed, they'd put him smaller and smaller. And then once you found him, it's like, well, that's obvious, right? You look at your kids like, sure, he's right there on the page. Find it. But you know, when you don't know, you just don't know. It's kind of like that. And then all of a sudden you see it and you go, wow, how could I have missed that? And that's what Jesus did with these guys. And then he sat down and had a meal with them. And as he broke bread with them, their eyes were open and they saw it was Jesus. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when we were talking? We knew something was up. And then they rushed back and told the disciples who also had reports that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, I am an avid Old Testament reader. And yet I still struggle to find all the things that Jesus pointed out about himself. But I can guarantee one thing. There is a passage that without any doubt in my heart and mind, Jesus pointed to in great detail that explained exactly not only why the Christ had to suffer, but exactly in detail how he had to suffer. And it's from the book of Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ was even born. It's Isaiah 53. It's the song of the suffering servant. And I thought, what an amazing thing to do today, to walk through the suffering of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, and then to really worship him for the one who not only died for our sins, but who rose again to give us hope. And so I want to walk through Isaiah 53. You could have a Bible or we're going to have the verses on the screen here. But Isaiah begins to speak about the suffering servant, whom he didn't know as Jesus, but ultimately we know as Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Isaiah begins with this. He says, who has believed our message? He starts with a couple questions. Who has believed our message? In other words, who's going to ever believe this? If anybody reads this, if anybody hears about this, they're not going to understand this. Nobody is going to guess this message. This is going to be so incredulous. Who is going to believe this report? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? In other words, God's arm is his specific, very direct interjection into the life of people in humanity. There's a lot of power displayed in the Bible about God. There are a lot of ways that God shows up. But when the Bible writers, specifically Isaiah, talks about the arm of the Lord, Isaiah is writing very specifically about God 
coming down into his creation and showing up in a miraculous way. He often combines it with the mighty hand and arm of God, the hand and the arm together, meaning God's swift judgment, God's swift dealing with a nation, with a kingdom. And Isaiah begins by saying, you're not going to believe this. When I tell you this whole story, it's going to be unbelievable that God actually cared enough to show up, to reveal himself in history. Well, here it is. He says, my servant. My servant, he's speaking about a suffering servant, and Isaiah wouldn't have really understood. The people at the time wouldn't have understood. But anybody afterwards, you and me today, would have gotten it. The servant is Jesus. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root out of dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Now, when you think about this, a a tender green shoot, that's not something to boast about. It's basically an unwanted sucker from a tree. Uh, my, my wife and I were out the other day working in our backyard and under one of our trees, she was noting these little, little suckers that are just coming up and she faithfully, dutifully, she just reached down and she started plucking them out. And you know, those are worthless. Those are actually a nuisance. Those are not helpful to our lawn. A root out of dry ground has nothing to offer. It's useless. It's barren. So Jesus grew up without any spectacular words of wisdom, without anybody looking at him and go, look at that grade A student. He's going to be the class valedictorian. Oh, he's going to marry. He's going he's to shine. He's going to change the world. No, Jesus just grew up like a normal person. According to Isaiah, when people looked at Jesus, he was just normal. He didn't win a Mr. Universe contest. I mean, he wasn't most likely to succeed. He wouldn't have been a male model. He was just normal. In fact, the Bible actually says people dismissed him. And they looked at him and said, who is he that he thinks he could do such great things? Isn't he just the son of Joseph the carpenter? They not only dismissed him, they were disappointed with him. You claim to be the Messiah? You? You're from nowhere. You're from just this little backwater blue-collar town. Who do you think you are? And they also despised him and they rejected him. Verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. The word despise means to take lightly or to actually to laugh at, to look at in mockery. The crowds, when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday... They had worshipped him, and they had thrown their coats down for him to walk over to say, you're superior to us. They had waved palm branches to declare him to be the Messiah, and they had shouted out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And not a week later, they're saying, no, we don't want him. Release Barabbas. And the crowd shouted, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Pilate asked, what do we do with this one called the Christ? And they in unison said, crucify him crucify him that's what we did to jesus we welcomed him and yet we rejected him verse four says yet it was our weaknesses he carried it was our sorrows that weighed him down and we thought his troubles were a punishment from god a punishment for our own sins 
Now, when Isaiah writes, he's very exact in his words, and we lose a little bit of it into an English translation. It doesn't mean merely that Jesus put on sins, took on sorrows. It literally means that he took off our sins. He took off our sorrows, and they placed them on himself. He placed our sins on himself. He placed our sorrows on himself, and he bore those willingly. Verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Literally, the word pierced means to be run through the body. That happened to Jesus when the nails pierced his flesh, pierced his hands and feet, when that sword pierced his side. Very specific. It ran through the body. Very painful and excruciating, leading to death. I mean, think about Isaiah and how he describes what our sin did to our Savior. It was our weaknesses. It was our sorrows. It was our rebellion. It was our sins. And Jesus willingly went through the piercing and the crushing, and the beatings, and the whipping. And he experienced the most brutal of all deaths. So we could be whole, and so we could be healed. I mean, think about this. Every arrow of divine judgment that should have been aimed at us and struck our hearts was aimed at Jesus and struck him. Every arrow of divine judgment that should have come our way was deflected and aimed toward Christ. All of the arrows for all of our failures and all of our dysfunction and all of our sin hit Christ's heart. He took the wounds and we received the healing. My friends, every one of us deserves to be punished. Every one of us has wandered away from God. Every one of us has deliberately rebelled and turned to our own way. Every one of us has decided to do what we wanted to do and not what God wanted for us. The Bible says because of that, every one of us deserves to be punished and be lost because of our sin. But instead, God took all of that off of us and he aimed all of those arrows and loaded them all with your sin and my sin and shot right into his heart. Christ died for you and for me. He didn't deserve any of it. If you step back a chapter in Isaiah 52, verse 14, there's an even more specific glimpse. It says, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Isaiah says, the Lord's servant is going to suffer horribly. His face would be brutally smashed and beaten, almost beyond human recognition. And Isaiah is not implying that he's going to be marred more than any man, but that his face is going to be so disfigured you could hardly recognize him as a man. Everyone who sees him will be shocked at the extent of his suffering. And my friends, that came true when Jesus carried the cross of Calvary's Hill. As the crowd mocked, And as the crowd spit 
And as the crowd laughed, the crowd turned away in disgust. Because the word amazed means to be shattered at the very core. It was used often of a city that warriors would go and completely crush and destroy, completely turn over, that no one would even have recognized it as their hometown anymore. And when it was used of a person, it meant that they were so disfigured that you would turn away in disgust and you would want to vomit. My family and I celebrated the Good Friday service together. And before that, we watched the Passion of the Christ together. And as we watched that movie, we saw the last 12 hours of what Jesus Christ, our Messiah, did for us. And we didn't look away. We flinched and we wept as we saw the suffering of our Messiah for us. As he was beaten, as his flesh was torn from him, as that crown of thorns was shoved into his forehead, as he carried the cross, and as he was nailed to the cross, and as he bled and died for us, Because that's exactly what happened. As horrific as it is to watch it, people looked at it and they laughed and they mocked. We're told that Jesus' appearance was so marred that he was so disfigured beyond any human likeness. And why did he allow that to happen to him? Well, Isaiah 53 goes back and says this, because all of us, All of us, that's you and that's me, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. And yet the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. All throughout the Bible, the metaphor of God being a shepherd and we being a sheep is displayed. It's you've seen in the Old Testament, it's seen in the Psalms, it's seen in the prophets. It's seen in the New Testament. Jesus in Luke 15 tells a story about a man who has a hundred sheep and one strays away, wanders away, goes away like all of us have. And guess what the shepherd does? He leaves the 99 safe and he goes and looks out for the one and he rescues the one who would be attacked and who would be destroyed and killed. Why does he do that? Because he loves the lost. He loves the least He loves the last. He loves everyone who's wandered away and he seeks them out. And when he finds them, he carries them home and he celebrates and he throws a party. God is looking for you, my friends. If you've wandered away, if you've strayed away, which we all have, but if you recognize it, he is looking for you. When we think about our sin, I think we often consider it as, well, kind of bad, but not as bad as it could be, right? Especially not as bad as the person sitting next to me, the person, you know, that I'm driving next to, the person that I live next to, the person that I work next to. And and we kind of are like a little boy who's gone out to play baseball and we've thrown that ball up in the air and we've cracked it with the bat. And all of a sudden that ball has hit the porch of a neighbor and all of these clay jars have been there and we've shattered a few of them. We've run up and there's a bunch, but we've destroyed a few. And We kind of look at our sin like that. And well, yeah, we've broken some, but we haven't broken them all. I mean, yeah, we've done some damage, but it's not as bad as it could be, right? It's only a couple pots. I mean, look what's left, right? Maybe I can go buy these or fix it. But that's not how the Bible describes sin. The Bible describes sin as if we were that little boy who threw that baseball up in the air and we cracked it with the bat and it hit our neighbor's front window pane and shattered it completely. You can't just buy a couple pieces of window. 
The, the whole thing is ruined. You've got to repair the entire thing. That is how God sees your sin and my sin. Not something that can just be fixed by our own work, our effort, our energy, but has to be completely replaced. And that's what Christ did. Verse 7, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. This was a miscarriage of justice. This was a kangaroo court. He didn't deserve to be shamelessly treated and rejected. An unfair judgment was pronounced upon him, but he willingly went to the cross. He willingly suffered for you. He quietly did it. He didn't answer his accusers, but he just kept his head down. He didn't fight for his freedom, but he won your freedom. His enemies questioned him. His enemies provoked him. His enemies falsely accused him, and yet he didn't retort. He could have called down the legions of angels to destroy his accusers, to destroy his attackers, but he remained silent, and he endured the shame of the cross to secure our salvation. Verse 8, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. That's you and me. Medical doctors tell us that there are five types of wounds that we can endure. The first is a contusion, which Jesus experienced when the men punched him in the face, when they ripped the beard from him, when they beat him. Number two, there's a laceration, which he received when the whips stripped the skin off of his back and shoulders. Number three, there's a penetration, which he received when the crown of thorns was brutally shoved onto his forehead. There is perforation, which he received when the spikes, those big heavy nails, pierced his hands and his feet. And finally, there is incision, when that spear was rammed through his side and blood and water flowed out to indicate he was dead. Why did Jesus accept these wounds? Why did Jesus willingly receive them? Well, my friends, so we could be healed. He took our beating. Verse 9 says he had never done any wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. I think this is amazing as a Bible student to think 700 years before the actual event, seven centuries before it happened, Isaiah with such amazing accuracy describes that Jesus would be laid in a borrowed tomb, in a rich man's tomb. We later know it's Joseph of Arimathea. And Jesus was laid in a brand new tomb. Verse 10, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Yet, in everything that happened, God was working his purpose. God was making his son, Jesus Christ, his life and death, a sacrificial offering that would satisfy all of the sins, all of the wrongs we've ever done. And when it was finished, God would be satisfied and Jesus would be exalted. Now, I think of it this way. When we sin, sin is our substituting ourselves for the place that only God deserves. If you go back to the very Garden of Eden, the very first sin was Adam and Eve putting themselves in the place of God. That's sin. But salvation is God substituting himself for us. 
and putting himself in the place where we should suffer and die. In fact, all real love, all true God-like love is a substitution. It's a sacrifice. Think about friendships. If all of your friendships are just simply peers that you can give and you can receive and it's kind of an equal back and forth, that's not a true friendship. If all you're ever looking for in a friend is, you know, how you can get what you need, that is not a friendship. That is a selfishness. But a, a sacrificing friendship is being willing to give when you don't have anything left to give, is being willing to sacrifice your time and your energy when you have more pressing things. That is sacrificial friendship. Think about marriage. Marriage is a sacrifice. It's dying to your own needs at times. It's giving your life over for your spouse. It's being willing to say no to what you want so you can say yes to a greater good. Think about parenting. Isn't that true? I mean, I know that. It's dying to your own dreams so that your children can have dreams. It's being willing to say no to what you want so your descendants can have something. That is true sacrificial sacrifice. And by stepping into our place and actually dying for us, God poured out the wrath that our sins deserved onto his son. That is substitution. Verse 11, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. My friends, our sorrows went on Jesus. Our punishment went on Jesus. Ten times in this passage, it says clearly that Jesus took upon himself something that wasn't his own, but was ours. That means that Jesus' death was not just a violent death. It was not just a voluntary death, but it was a vicarious death. It was given for us. It was done for us. He took our sins. Now, let me make it personal. Jesus bore my sins. Jesus bore your sins. And verse 12, Isaiah finishes this chapter with these words. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. He died so that there could be a path for our salvation. Jesus willingly went to the cross so you and so I could have a way forward to have a, a relationship with God. Jesus died and separated himself from the Father so we could live and be connected to God the Father. He died in our place. Charles Dickens writes in A Tale of Two Cities, an amazing tale of a man named Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay. Both men who loved the same young woman and vied for her interest. She ended up marrying Charles and they had children. But because of the French Revolution and because of him being aristocracy, he was captured, arrested, taken to prison, awaiting an execution by guillotine. But on the night before his execution, Sidney found a way into prison. And he happened to look a lot like Charles. And as he snuck into prison, he found Charles' cell he broke in, he said, Charles, look, you have a wife. You have children. Let's switch places. Let's change clothes. I will die in your place. Charles objected and said, no, are you kidding? I'll never let you do such a thing. But Sidney insisted. In fact, he knocked him out. He had his body drug out to safety. He switched clothes with Charles. He took his place in prison, waiting to be executed. 
And as Sidney is waiting there in the place of Charles in prison, a young woman, a seamstress, heard that Charles is there waiting to be killed. She knew Charles from the past, and so when she heard he was there, she sought him out, and she just begged to talk to him for some comfort. Sydney is trying to look away as to not reveal the truth, and it only took a short time before she realized it wasn't Charles, it was someone else. And her eyes got big, and she looked at Sydney, and she said, are you dying for him? He said, yeah, and for his wife, and for his children. See, my friends, that's what Christ did for us. The great theologian J.I. Packer once asked these questions. Believer, are you melted by spiritual understanding of how much God loves you? Are you walking in the reality of it day by day? Can you breathe it in your lungs? Can you feel it on your skin? Can you taste it on your tongue? Can you touch God's love with your fingers? Do you know how different you'd be if you would just simply realize the magnitude of God's love for you? My friends, as I draw to a close with this message, I just want to remind you of something Jesus, our Savior, said in John 10, verse 11. He declared, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life and he willingly died for you and for me to give us true life. And the crucifixion is something that absolutely happened in history, but absolutely changes everything. The servant has come to suffer in your place. The Messiah has come to die in your place. Isaiah gives a 53 just a chapter, just a beautiful 12 verses of a complete picture of the death of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on your behalf and my behalf. His death satisfied the righteous demands of God's judgment against your sins and my sins. The question I would ask, though, is one, would you believe that Christ died for you? And two, more importantly, would you receive it as your personal forgiveness for sins? And John 1, 12 John says, to all who believed in him, means to accept the facts. And to all who received him, means to put your complete trust in it. He gave the right to become the children of God. And if you believe, and if you receive, you become. But it's only when you believe and you receive can you become. Today we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But before he could ever come back from the dead, He had to die for you and for me. Would you pray with me? God, I don't know why you love us so much. We're dirty, rotten scoundrels. We're filthy sinners who've rebelled against you. We are like sheep who've strayed away. We have wandered away, willingly going into other pastures, pushing you aside. Our sinfulness has said, God, get out of my way. I want to be God of my life. And yet you and your love and compassion for us has seen our brokenness, has seen our disparity, has seen the reality of our lives that we could never get there. We couldn't just to repair a few broken pots of clay. But you came in and you completely replaced the broken pane of glass that sin has so clearly shattered with the life and death of Christ. And so, Father, when we believe... And when we receive, we become a son, a daughter of the Most High God. 
It was your love that redeemed us. And all of your wrath for all of your sin was poured upon the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus himself, so that we would be whole, so that we would be healed, so that we would be saved. And Father, for those of us who know it, who live in it, may we taste it, may we touch it, may we breathe it, may we experience it day by day, may we be changed, so changed that the world is shocked at who we are and what's happened in our lives that they can't believe a people would be so different. And if we haven't received it, if we haven't responded to it, Father, this is the day to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who died in our place. To believe that we have sinned and yet to believe that he has saved us. And not only that, to actually receive it personally, to welcome it in as our salvation. That we have been carried back and brought into the family of God. That we as a wounded, wandering sheep have been carried on the shoulders of a shepherd, a savior who's loved us so much. And we receive it for ourselves. And then we become your son or your daughter, a child of the most high God. Father, this is not a religion. This is not a bunch of rules. This is not a list of rituals. This is a relationship with you. And you've done it all. And you welcome us back home. Father, I pray that we would receive it today. And we would welcome Jesus as our Messiah. Maybe we could pray a simple prayer. Just pray a simple prayer like this. Father God, I believe that you sent Jesus to suffer and to die for me. To carry my sin on his body. To die my death on the cross. To substitute himself for me. To cover over my sin with his blood. And I receive that into my life. And I accept that fact that I am now a son or daughter. Not because of my own effort, but because of the effort of Christ. Not because of my own work, but because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Not because I'm sorry enough, but because he carried all my sorrows. And I receive it. And I'm your child today. Father God, may we live in a complete submission to the one who's been victorious over death and who rose again. Jesus Christ, our Savior, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And it is in his name we pray, amen.